It's Monday, April 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As we continue to track and monitor the spread of COVID-19 cases across the country, one important metric is the total death count. But depending on which state we are getting numbers from, these deaths can be tallied in very different ways. Some states only count the death if there is a confirmed laboratory test. Others count probable cases of coronavirus. Some, like Dr. Deborah Burks, says a death should count to the total tally if someone has COVID-19 regardless of the cause of death. Others wouldn't count it if, for example, they died by a heart attack. All of these inconsistencies amount to what could be an undercount in the official numbers. Emma Brown, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for which deaths count toward the COVID-19 death toll. Next, coronavirus and social distancing has disrupted the power of touch. While we maintain distance, things like the handshake may be dying. You can't hug a friend or a loved one. And some feel like they may be in touch isolation. So what does this mean for how we connect with each other when this is all over? It may take some time to get things back to normal and feel comfortable with the way we touch and want to be touched. In the meantime, experts agree you should give your skin whatever it needs to make it feel its best. Tim Tiemann, senior editor at The Daily Beast, joins us for a conversation about the power of touch, its importance, and how it might come back. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. States are only reporting to the federal government the number of people who die and test positive for COVID-19. And of course, we know that testing has been really limited. So folks who are dying and not being tested were, were not being included in that tally. Joining us now is Emma Brown, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Emma. Thanks for having me going to continue talking about coronavirus and the tracking and spread of the disease across the country. There's a lot of different metrics we go by, confirmed cases, hospitalizations. Uh, People have said we should be looking to to really see how much this is impacting us. But one number that a lot of people really like to look at is the deaths, the total death count of people who have gotten COVID-19. But really, that number is also pretty elusive. It depends on what state you're in. And then the overall federal numbers kind of take an aggregate and then they do something with the numbers too. And it's always changing. So even going by that metric is kind of tough. Emma, tell us a little bit about how states are counting the death count with regards to COVID-19. We did a story about a week ago that was about how the nation is almost certainly undercounting the number of deaths because as the CDC described to us, states are only reporting to the federal government, the number of people who die and test positive for COVID-19. And of course, we know that testing has been really limited. So folks who are dying and not being tested were were not being included in that tally. What we found as we went deeper for this story is that, in fact, states are doing it in different ways. So, for example, Colorado has for weeks been including more people than just those who test positive, but also including what they call epidemiologically linked deaths. So people who had close contact with a confirmed case and also symptoms consistent with the disease. Whereas Alabama is actually weeding out deaths. So they are not reporting all deaths of people who die with the disease. They're conducting an additional review of medical records to see whether they believe that person actually died of the disease. And about one in 10 people who died with it, they have concluded did not actually die of it. So those folks do not get reported into the state's official tally or then the federal tally. So I want to drill down into that a little bit because we've been talking a lot about this, obviously, on the podcast and people that come down with COVID-19. It's a respiratory illness. It attacks the lungs. 
and people can get pneumonia. And that's some of the more severe symptoms on that front. But we also hear a lot about underlying health conditions and people with diabetes, heart conditions, other respiratory conditions. And sometimes people are dying of those symptoms being exacerbated because of the crazy immune system and all that. So if somebody, let's say, dies of a heart attack, but they have COVID-19, where does that count? Are they being counted as a COVID-19 death or not because they died of a heart attack? That's one of the things that depends on where you are. So in Alabama, for example, the state told us the kinds of categories of people that may not be counted as COVID-19 are those who did not have respiratory symptoms or those who died of an acute event like a heart attack or stroke or folks who like die in a car accident. So your heart attack example is one where in Alabama you might not be counted. It, of course, depends on a lot of other factors. And in Alabama, they were careful to say folks who have underlying conditions, that doesn't mean they're not going to be counted. We take it case by case. But I think it just points to the fact that, as you said, that number that you see kind of flashed on screen throughout the day as the number who have died in the U.S., it looks like a really concrete number. But when you look beneath the surface, you see that there's a lot of different assumptions sort of built into that number that are different depending on where you are. It really seems like a judgment call for the doctors or whoever's determining what category to put it in. Continuing in Alabama, because they seem to be this kind of outlier in the way that they're counting things. There was an example you gave in your story where there was two patients who each died with problems in one lung, and they were excluded from the death count because in most cases of COVID-19, both lungs are affected. In Jefferson County, which includes Birmingham, the state's largest city, the head of the health department there did describe in a little bit of detail the folks who had been ruled out. That is, they died with the disease, they had tested positive for it, but they were not sort of included in the number of people who died from the disease. And that's exactly it. There were two people who had lung problems, but the problems were only in one lung. And so the doctor who basically did this medical review concluded they did not die of COVID because they didn't have it in both lungs. There was another person who had sepsis, which is like your body's immune reaction to a bacterial bloodstream infection, died of sepsis, and they said did not have COVID-related symptoms. And then there were two folks who were in hospice for other illnesses, and according to the medical officers, did not have COVID symptoms. Dr. Deborah Burks, who is on the coronavirus task force for the White House, basically said that if you have coronavirus and then you die, it should be counted as a COVID-19 death. So how does the CDC and the national count, how do they classify all these deaths? Because all of this that we're hearing kind of just points to a severe underestimation of what the deaths really could be. Burks did say that, and there has been, against the backdrop of this political back and forth about whether the number is perhaps in some way an overcount. So on Fox News, that has been sort of a theme that maybe the number is too high because we're counting too many people who die with it, but would have died anyway, basically. And she and Dr. Anthony Fauci both said last week that's not the case and tried to tamp that down. What she was saying there about how everybody who dies with it will be counted or we intend to count each of those people was interesting in terms of this story because our reporting shows that that's in the case of Alabama, clearly not true. When we asked CDC about it, they said we report what states report to us. That was their answer. So we do live in, a, of course, a federal system where there's a lot of decentralization between the states. So I think it comes down to the fact that states are doing it in different ways. And the CDC is reporting, as you said, the aggregate of all those different ways. 
Emma Brown, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. My sense is, at the moment, no pun intended, that people feel generally extremely nervous around touch, and that nervousness will carry on in some extent, at least in the early part of our post-coronavirus world. Joining us now is Tim Tiemann, senior editor and writer at The Daily Beast. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Thank you so much. Very happy to be here. wanted to talk about touch, continuing our coverage about coronavirus and COVID-19 You know, when all of this is over and we hope that we can get back to normal sooner rather than later, you know, one of the things we've been practicing right now is this whole social distancing. Stay away from people. Don't come within six feet of people. And, uh, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci, one of the faces of the coronavirus response team for the administration, he says right now we shouldn't be shaking anybody's hands and it might be something that might never come back. There's a lot of stuff going on right now with regards to touch and how we experience other people. And who knows what it's going to look like when we get on the other side of this thing. So, Tim, you wrote an article about how coronavirus has killed the power of touch and how do we reconnect. Tell us a little bit about it. Yes. I was really just fascinated because of the contradictions that your introduction lays out just personally. I was also talking to one of the people I quote in the article, who's anonymous, a friend of mine, who spoke to me at the weekend. We were just having a chat about various things. And he he said how much he was missing touch as a single person. And it really just sort of got me thinking about touch at this moment and how almost overnight our experience of touch generally has completely changed. Just generally the nervousness we now have around touch because touch at the moment is seen as a vector of transmission of this invisible, terrible disease. So people are extremely nervous, most obviously around handshaking, hugging or kissing somebody on the cheek. Think about the whole range of touch responses we have to not only our closest friends, our loved ones, people we may have sex with, but also just professional contacts, people you may see in an office or in a meeting. All of those touch signals would seem, at least in the short term, if and when we come out of this, as things we won't need to rethink. Because my sense is, at the moment, that people feel generally extremely nervous around touch and that nervousness will carry on in some extent, at least in the early part of our post-coronavirus world as we begin to think about collectively gathering together again in whatever numbers and in whatever spatial requirements are attached to that. But at some point, we're going to go back out into the world. And at that point, people will have decisions to make around how they touch or do not touch others. And conversely, how people wish to be touched. I just had an experience with this just in this past week. I have a friend, a coworker who I've known for many years. I had to drop something off Mm -hmm. at his house and uh, he recently had a kidney transplant actually. So he's already kind of in this social distancing mode, but for Uh, years, but for years, you know, I'm a hugger. I've hugged him, shook his hands. We've shared food off the same plate and I dropped, it was just a letter I had to drop off at his house. And there was this weird moment where we kind of both leaned in and then took back because, you know, we were, our natural inclination was to hug as we greet and, and we realized, Absolutely. okay, we have to not do this. So the question I have, were Americans ever touchy feely in that way? I know there's been some research and ongoing research done into that. Americans as a culture, are we that way? As an Englishman, my impression was Americans were pretty touchy feely compared to us. When I came here 10 years ago to live, 
But according to Professor Tiffany Field, who's one of the people quoted in the article, she heads up the Touch Institute at the University of Miami. She and her team have been in the most recent study before COVID-19 hit us. Her and her team were going to mostly American airports to observe the behavior of travelers at departure gates. And what she and her team observed was a remarkable lack of touch amongst people. She said that 98% of the people that they observed were simply in sort of solitary, non-touching other units, scrolling on their mobile phones and pretty engrossed in that. So for Professor Field, she said that America traditionally had not been a touchy-feely country. And this again goes back to some supposition around why countries such as Italy and France, where touch and touch between generations is seen as a very fulsome and wonderful thing to do, why they may have been hit so hard by COVID-19. One of the researchers I spoke to said the thing that's going to be a game changer if it happens is medicine and medical advance and vaccine. And when and if there is progress on all those fronts, when this begins to feel in society like a manageable thing because of medical advances, because of a vaccine, because of some notion that it can be treated, but it won't be a a, a terrible consequence for a broad range of people, then maybe, maybe we can return to some kind of touch normality or some semblance of that and we will feel less nervous about touching each other but that is going to be something again that is going to be tested on us collectively and that's an interesting point because everybody experiences this in a different way you know there's a lot of research that shows there's a lot of benefits to touching both physical and psychological but the way people experience touch especially right now and and how they they miss it let's say is different you know single people are probably more isolated than somebody that has a partner, right? Uh, For them, it's probably more about observing proper space than touching. Uh, So everybody kind of goes, you know, some of the experts and and people that you talk to in the article too say, you know, you got to give your skin everything it wants right now. You know, whether it's the simple things like having a a bath or, uh, you know, a luxurious lotion or something, something that can help you in any way to get through this. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's um, beautifully summarized. Yes. I mean, What you're going through at the moment will depend very much on if you are with somebody or if you're not. Um, If you're single and solo, you, if you're abiding by social distancing and the instructions that we've been given, will not be being touched or touching anybody else. If you are in a family situation or if you're in a relationship, um, if you have a partner, if you're in a household or an apartment where there is somebody else that you are involved with, that you are isolated with, you will most likely, um, if the relationship is good, and I hope it is, um, will be experiencing touch and touching that other person in some sense. And so touch, we know, um, helps with the immune system, digestion, tiredness. It's basically, it releases this thing called oxytocin, which is a good thing. It's a stress release. They call it the love hormone. Um, So when we're intimate with somebody, and when we're touched by somebody that we're intimate with, this gets released and it's good for us. So at the moment, for single people, they're not really getting that. And one of the researchers said it would be fascinating to see in that range of single people um, whether oxytocin is, is dipping below certain levels. Um, and certainly the psychological state of people not being touched um, for a long period of time, the researchers think, is detrimental. Um, that touch is necessary for a happy and stable mind. So that's something to look at for the future. And looking into that future, as you say, 
how we treat our skin, which is something I hadn't thought about until I spoke to the researchers, apparently is key. Like you say, lotions, bath, anything that stimulates the skin surface is a good thing. In whatever way you like, the researchers say, the scientists say, do that. And that will at least, if you are on your own, make you feel better and make your skin feel better and give you some sensory sort of pleasure. And then moving on from that, obviously, we come to sex, which is something which, again, if single people living on their own are following instructions, they will not be having sex right now. And so the researchers are, again, pointing to the importance if people like it and if it gives them pleasure of masturbation and feeling kind of okay about that and doing that. And maybe that becomes kind of important to those people at the moment. Obviously, if you're in a relationship, if you're in a couple of any kind, then then sex and sexual intimacy may be part of that experience. And, you know, good good for you and lucky you if you you have that and if you have that experience. It's the long-term effects of this which which are fascinating researchers at the moment. And Professor Field in Miami, it is a fascinating survey of touch, but also just our general feelings of quarantine. She has launched a sort of a COVID-19 quarantine survey of us. And the questions are super intelligent and super interesting and really wonderful as a survey to sit with. They're not stupid questions. They, They really make you think about not just your touching and how you're being touched or the touching that you're doing, your fear around touch, being outside in the world if you're getting groceries or on the street, in the supermarket, but also the joy of touch if you're getting any touch that gives you any pleasure. And then also talking about anxiety, depression, and all kinds of associated things with the quarantine experience. And I definitely recommend you and your listeners just to look at the survey and even take it. Yeah, it definitely would be interesting to see what happens after this. You know, we're going through this moment, people call it touch isolation, and there could be this moment of touch PTSD. You know, people are still going to be worried about the virus after social distancing gets lifted. And, and, you know, how will we react? You know, will will a handshake ever come back? You know, things like that. It's going to be these long lasting effects that we'll have to keep an eye out for. So it it is really fascinating. The researchers and scientists, they are optimistic that there will be some in time when we feel assured that there is some level of safety. um, They are confident that touch in some form will emerge again. And as I said in my piece, it's ironic that we're feeling so conflicted and strange around touch right now, because in the hospitals all around our country, there are doctors and nurses in intensive care with patients who are very ill and dying, who, as, because their families cannot be with them, the last things that they, they are sometimes doing, or when they're just very sick, something they do for comfort, is to hold their hand, which is the most profound thing they could do at that moment. So imagine that we're feeling rightly weird about it. And then in those hospitals, at the most critical moment for those patients, confronting their mortality, they are being touched and touch being that last maybe sensation or the most fundamental sensation to give them comfort, love, and a sense of belonging. So there's an assertion of touch at the very heart of this pandemic that is almost an act of, of love and defiance, I guess, which is kind of amazing. Tim Tiemann, senior editor and writer at The Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.